Welcome to another episode of the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. As always, you can find us on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. In the past, I've asked for comments or questions or suggestions for what you would like to hear on the podcast. That request was never made simply to be polite. When you make a podcast, you attempt to figure out what listeners might like to hear. If you're enjoying this series in which we've been asking if evangelicalism qualifies as a cult, do let me know. If you don't like that, also let me know. For the next episode, we'll be considering the idea of doctrine over person. As with the previous episodes on evangelicalism, I'll be using Robert J. Lifton's taxonomy. Here's what he says about doctrine over person. Rather than modify the myth in accordance with experience, the will to orthodoxy requires instead that men be modified in order to reaffirm the myth. My question to you is, does that in any way describe your experience of evangelicalism, or for that matter, some other form of Christian religion? In effect, Lifton is saying that instead of recognizing individual persons as different from one another, the cult requires that everyone conform to its vision or its idea of the good or the truth. If that doesn't describe your experience, I'd like to hear about that too. Please send any of those comments or questions or suggestions to onbecoming at gmail.com. Additionally, if you've been enjoying the podcast so far and are interested in helping us grow, please consider recommending us to your friends reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or donating to our Patreon, which includes access to exclusive members-only content. Today's episode is on Easter, but it's going to be a little different. You probably think you already know everything you need to know about Easter, but I want to focus on something a little different. Let's start with the reason for Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You may already know this famous passage that comes from the first book of the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified of God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. The logic of this passage is a little hard to follow. You would think that Paul would argue that if Christ has not been raised, then the dead have not been raised. Instead, he argues the very opposite. But then, of course, the question is, how does Jesus' resurrection become exemplary for the rest of us? Let's leave that problem, because I don't think it really admits of an easy solution. Instead, let's focus on that last line. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Okay, it's not hard to see that Christ not being raised would be a bit of a downer. 
which is why Paul goes on to provide first-hand and second-hand evidence for the claim that the risen Lord appeared to many. He mentions that Jesus appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. The list continues, but even in this first part, it's interesting that Mary Magdalene isn't mentioned at all. In contrast, three of the Gospels place her as one of the first, or else the first, to see Jesus after his resurrection. But there's also a problem even here. In addition to Mary Magdalene, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, the earliest Gospel, includes Mary the mother of James, which is a title that might have identified her enough to the original audience, but doesn't really tell us much today, and then someone named Salome. Let me read the note on this passage directly from Nestle Allen edition of the Greek New Testament, which is the standard Greek text used by scholars. Some of the most ancient authorities bring the book to a close at the end of verse 8. One authority concludes the book with the shorter ending. Others include the shorter ending and then continue with verses 10 through 12. In most authorities, verses 9 through 20 follow immediately after verse 8, though in some authorities the passage is marked as doubtful. In verses 5 to 8, we are told that the three women encountered a young man wearing a white robe who told them that Jesus was risen, but that he was somewhere else, that Jesus was going to Galilee. The last verse concludes as follows, So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You may have noticed that while the writer says that Jesus is risen, the three women don't actually experience that for themselves. From what we know, early scholars were dissatisfied with this ending. There simply is no actual post-resurrection appearance. So the night verse has them telling the reader that, and now I'm quoting, all that had been commanded of them they told briefly to those around Peter, and afterward Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. We don't know exactly when this ending was added, though it was a long time ago. Bruce Metzger, a highly respected New Testament scholar, notes that the early church fathers, such as Clement of Alexandria and Origen in the early third century don't seem to be aware of these verses. So the additions were likely added centuries after Mark was written. An early manuscript of Mark in the Codices Vaticanus simply has a blank page after the eighth verse. Moreover, I hope you can hear that the eighth verse and the ninth are clearly in conflict. In the eighth, they say nothing. In the ninth, they tell Peter and his friends. So you really have to choose one verse over the other. There are additional verses that have been added to the end of Mark to make it a bit cheerier. However, all of these verses are clearly additions, with verse 9 being one addition and verses 10 to 14 being additional additions. Some conservative scholars attempt to argue that those who affirm the shorter ending are liberal. But it's really not a liberal or conservative thing. Either these additional verses are forgeries or they're not. The evidence points to them being forgeries. But let's go back to Paul's list. After Cephas, or Peter, Paul says Jesus appeared to the 12 disciples, then to 500 people, most of whom, says Paul, are still alive. 
then to James, then to the apostles, and finally to Paul himself. Paul is clearly marshalling evidence for his claim. But it's interesting that Paul seems utterly unaware of the women who first saw Jesus post-resurrection. He also appears unaware that Jesus appeared to the two guys on the road to Emmaus. Of course, the Gospels hadn't been written by the time Paul was writing his letters. The first letter to the church at Corinth is estimated to have been written around 53-54 AD or CE. The Gospel of Mark dates around 70 AD or CE. What should we make of this number of 500? Here are some possibilities. One is that Paul actually means the descent of the Spirit on Pentecost, in which the Holy Spirit is a kind of stand-in for Jesus. Another theory, the church father John Chrysostom suggests that this appearance happened after Jesus had ascended. That's a very interesting position, particularly because it's hard to know what to make of it. He ascended, then he came back again, then he ascended. Yeah, not, not so clear. Another theory is that Paul is speaking about an event that happened in Galilee. And the last is that Paul is simply making this up. Let me go on record to say that the Paul is just making this up theory is kind of unlikely. However, we should note that our expected level of precision in terms of time and weights and measures tends to be much higher than in previous times. Many people assume that 500 is a made-up number, and I think that's likely the case. Not because Paul was a liar, but because we cannot expect our level of precision to be reflected in ancient texts written with very different levels of precision. Here's the thing. Only Paul mentions this appearance to 500 people. Given that he was writing before the Gospels were written, it's unlikely that the Gospel writers would simply choose to omit this point. If anything, you could expect them to elaborate on it, to, to tell more about this event. The writer of the book known as Luke Acts speaks of Jesus appearing to the apostles over a period of 40 days. Whenever the biblical writers use numbers like 40, which is a very important number in Hebrew thought, it's much more likely that this is intended as figurative and not literal. Again, this is yet another problem with reading the Bible in a strictly literal fashion. In any case, of course, you'll have to decide for yourself if you think Paul's argument is convincing. That's not my job. However, I do want to highlight something that Paul says. We noted that he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. He goes on to say, if for this life only we hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I want you to see that Paul's making a very strong, but also very particular claim. In effect, he's saying that if the resurrection didn't happen, then the hope in Christ is only for this life. And this gets to a fundamentally important point. What was Jesus teaching? What was his main teaching? What was it about? Was it primarily about the life to come? Or was it about the life here? You are welcome to respond both. However, the Christian tradition, certainly the evangelical tradition, has made the primary focus of Christianity to be about the world to come. As I've mentioned in dispensational theology, none of the things Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount are applicable to us today. Loving your enemy, even your neighbor, that's about the life to come. But this gives us a very flattened reading of what Jesus says. The Sermon on the Mount is full of radical teachings, 
I can see why dispensationalists preferred to put those teachings into some time in the future, because they're very demanding. When Jesus says that he's come to give abundant life, does he mean that someday, in some other place, this life will occur? If so, there's not a lot of meat left in his teachings. They can be simply dismissed as something we don't have to worry about at this point. But otherwise, this talk about doing radically good things is basically just talk. Why is it that so much focus has been put on the life to come? Isn't Paul effectively negating the power of the gospel by saying that if it's only about life on earth, our faith is in vain? Let me categorically state my own position. I'm really not sure what to make of the claim that Jesus was resurrected. I have no evidence to the contrary, though I don't really think it comes down to evidence per se. You can believe or you can choose not to believe. Believing or not believing has much more to do with your own disposition. However, I believe, yes, that the teachings of Jesus are really what the gospel is about. With that assumption in mind, yes, it's an assumption. That means I can't prove it. I want to ask a question about something you most likely weren't expecting to hear about on Easter. Hell. If the resurrection is really the focus of Jesus' teachings, then avoiding hell must be pretty important, and getting to heaven becomes truly important. However, to talk about hell, we first need to say a few things about what it means to be a human person. Here's a way of getting at this question. When Billy Graham was asked if he feared death, his reply was this. I do not fear death. I may fear a little bit about the process, but not death itself because I think the moment that my spirit leaves this body, I will be in the presence of the Lord. Like everyone, Graham is welcome to hold such a belief, and many people who identify as Christians hold similar beliefs. Perhaps you know that there simply isn't any consensus on what happens to us immediately after death, even in the evangelical world. That's right, there's no widely accepted theory as to what happens between death and the judgment day. People like Graham think their soul goes directly to heaven. Others speak of the soul sleeping. However, as it turns out, this view is profoundly at odds with what the early Christians would have, in fact, could have thought. To see this point, we need to ask, what does the term spiritual mean? If we go back to the Hebrew Bible, we see that it depicts God in remarkably human terms. God has arms and legs. Moses is told that he cannot see God's back. God repeatedly changes his mind. And he needed to rest on the seventh day of creation. This just doesn't sound that much like a spiritual being. Moreover, God shapes dirt to form human beings. Here I'm quoting. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. In both the Hebrew and Christian Bibles, angels and humans seem to be almost the same. There's a famous scene in the Hebrew Bible in which Jacob wrestles with an angel, or maybe a human person, or God. It's never really made clear. Other times, angels appear, but they look just like humans. In other words, the kind of sharp distinctions made by us today, seeing spirit and body as quite different and separate, are really not found in the Hebrew Bible. Consider the basic definitions of spiritual, here from the Oxford English Dictionary, of relating to or deriving from the mind or intellect, 
associated with the higher faculties such as reason, judgment, discernment, etc. Intellectual as opposed to sensual, material, or practical. Note that there isn't anything weird here. What about the soul? For the ancient Greeks, all things have souls, not just human beings, but rocks and stars and trees. You get the idea. The soul, psuche, is the breath that animates us, makes us alive. On this view, anything needs a soul to exist. Aristotle said that everything has a soul. But we've become rather minimalist about souls since then. We don't usually think that rocks have souls. There may be people who think that their dogs have souls, but I'd love to hear the evidence they have for such a view. If Pasuke is really just breath, it doesn't seem to be supernatural. In other words, there's not much more natural to a living being than breathing. Nietzsche takes a somewhat different position on the soul. He says, body I am entirely and nothing else, and the soul is only a word for something about the body. In other words, we can still use terms like soul or spirit or mind, even if they don't correspond to a particular entity. They are simply terms we use to make sense of ourselves. I don't think we can get along very well without notions like the spiritual, though the problem is that this term has become so complex and has so many conflicting notions attached that it may be a word that people simply want to avoid. But even Nietzsche didn't think that was possible, since the term soul or spiritual get at something every person has. Interestingly enough, Nietzsche speaks of great reason as the kind of reason one gains through the body. He calls little reason conscious thought. In other words, the entire hierarchy is reversed. For the ancient Greeks like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, the body is a prison and death is described at the moment the soul leaves the body, thus finally becoming free. Now, you may have noticed that the body is constantly under suspicion in some branches of Christianity. If you read Paul, you might come away with the distinct impression that the body is dirty, sex is dirty, anything to do with the flesh is dirty. But this is so problematic. The Genesis account has God creating the world and then pronouncing it good, you can argue that the fall changes the situation, but it seems rather drastic simply to pronounce anything fleshly as bad. What are we if we are not material bodies? However, here's the important thing. The idea of the human soul as potentially disembodied is not a Jewish idea, nor is it initially a Christian idea. The Hebrew Bible uses the terms nefesh and ruah, indicates something like a soul. But the soul isn't a thing. It is quite literally what makes you alive. Breath, air, oxygen. If you remember, the Genesis 2 account of creation involves God breathing into Adam's nostrils. In effect, the soul is a light form of matter, not something spiritual. Over time, due to the influence of Platonism, such thinking that the soul was an entity started becoming part of Christian thinking. Augustine is one of the people that helped this process along the way because he believed that anything the Bible didn't answer could be found in Plato. Put another way, this view would have seemed a little crazy to Jesus. 
When he talks about coming back from the dead, he would have meant something like resurrection, in which the whole thing reappears. Of course, exactly what this would entail was clearly not apparent to the early Christian writers. In the Gospel of John, we are told that Mary Magdalene first thinks Jesus is the gardener. Only after he speaks does she realize it's him. When he joins up with a couple of guys on their way to Emmaus, they also don't recognize him. They'd been talking about how disappointed they were that Jesus had been crucified. If you've heard the story, you'll know that it's when he breaks the bread that they finally recognize him, and then he immediately disappears. It seems like he's able to walk through walls, appear, disappear, but he also eats a fish in front of them. Now, if that isn't weird and confusing, I don't know what is. The usual take on the resurrection from a Christian point of view, of course, is, yay, we'll get resurrected too. But I find it hard to put all of this stuff together. The disciples and Mary don't recognize Jesus at first, and then they do. Jesus is liquid enough to seep through a wall, but he's also got stomach and intestines. I'm at a complete loss to understand that. Bear in mind, the limits of my reason are hardly definitive proof of anything, but it's hard to believe things that simply don't make any sense. One of the great advantages of the Greek thinking in which the soul is a thing, a spiritual entity, is that it provides a really nice, clean, easy explanation for how we'd be able to survive death. The body drives, the soul lives on. Done. But the idea of resurrection makes this much more complicated. It also raises some really difficult questions. Let me give you an example. The prominent, very bright, highly regarded philosopher Peter Van Inwagen believes that God will recreate us using the same atoms as before. How exactly this is supposed to happen is a mystery to me, but of course Van Inwagen doesn't mean to suggest that he understands how this happens, just that he thinks it does. But this raises the very question of what happens to us when we die, or more accurately, what happens to me. You might think this is all worked out in the Bible, and then you would be very, very wrong. It's very far from being worked out. At most, various things are implied without much development. In the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, there's the word sheol, which is some kind of dark place, then the depths, the pit, and the grave. None of these terms is ever defined. There is no theology of Sheol. Indeed, consider what Ecclesiastes says. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, and even the memory of them is lost. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. Never again will they share in all that happens under the sun. When I read that passage, I think to myself, this is a view that when you die, that's it. However, late in the Hebrew Bible, which means late in the development of Hebrew thought, the prophets started talking about revivifying the dead. Isaiah writes, Your dead shall live, their corpses shall rise. O dwellers in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a radiant dew, and the earth will give birth to those long dead. In the book of Daniel we read, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Did you catch that? That sentence begins not with all, but many. 
Who are these many? Is that 50%? Is it some other number? 30%? 70%? It's very unclear. You may have heard of the Sadducees. They were around in Jesus' time. What you've probably never been told is that they were the traditionalists, the conservatives. They believed that once you die, that's it. In contrast, the Pharisees were more progressive in their thinking because they thought that God would bring everyone back to life in order to judge all, punishing or rewarding. Jesus seems to have held that view, but he didn't hold it in the sense that the soul lived on. The Hebrew conception of a person was that we are whole beings. Either the whole of us is alive or the whole of us is dead. There is no in-between state. We can also note that the terms life and death have both literal and more metaphorical meanings. Deuteronomy 30 is a classic call to Israel. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, that I am commanding you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and observing his commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to possess. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Jesus takes up this way of talking about life. He suggests that sin is against life or doesn't promote life. That's what makes sin bad. Interestingly enough, I discovered teaching young evangelicals that many of them thought that the prohibitions found in the Bible were somehow because God didn't want anybody to have fun. A student actually said to me something like, I'd love to do some of the things the Bible prohibits. And that made me think, what a strange concept of God. He's the guy who makes sure you never have any fun. Since we've been talking about hell, we need, of course, to talk about the word Gehenna. You probably know that Jesus uses this term a number of times, 11 to be exact. Where does it come from? It was at Gehenna that the Israelites sacrificed their children to the Ammonite god Moloch during the reign of Solomon and up until the Babylonian exile. I realize that you're probably accustomed to thinking of the Israelites as monotheists, but that ended up being more of a goal than a reality. Otherwise, why would the prophet spend so much time condemning pagan practices and worshiping idols? Given this long-standing association, the valley, which lies to the south of Jerusalem, is deemed cursed and was likely made into a trash site in order to stop people from sacrificing their children there. Gehenna simply means the Valley of Hinnom, and it's a very real place. You can find it on Google Maps. Jesus' original listeners would have known that he was talking about a real place on earth rather than a fictitious place. It was, of course, like most garbage dumps. It was constantly on fire as a way to reduce the waste. It attracted animals who fought over scraps of food. I think we can all agree that this would not be a place you'd want to hang out. You'd want to dump your trash and get out of there. But the story gets more interesting. In the rabbinic tradition, Gehenna was a place that one could be sent to be punished. The kinds of progressions that would land you there were idolatry, incest, adultery, pride, anger, and, as an added bonus, anyone who made fun of a rabbinic scholar. The amount of time you might need to serve there was anywhere from three months to a year. 
While there are rabbis who believed that certain sins would merit everlasting punishment, here's what they actually believed. Anyone who repented, teshuva, was free to go at any time. So the idea of everlasting punishment simply wouldn't have made any sense. Who would be so dumb as to want to stay in Gehenna on a permanent basis? But there's a further complication. Although the actual Gehenna was real enough, the one for cleansing you from sin was much less real. There was and is no scholarly consensus as to where this place is, whether it existed in the past or the present or the future, or whether it's an actual place. Some rabbis believe that God created hell on the sixth day of creation, though I'm not really sure how they get to that conclusion. Yes, you can just imagine God doing inventory. I created the sky and the earth, animals, people. Oh, and I checked hell off the list. From a purely practical point of view, let's just say that you've committed idolatry and you deserve some punishment. Where exactly would you go to get your punishment? In other words, this idea is very vague. It exists as a concept or an idea. At this point, I'd like to turn to some of the points that Marcus Borg makes in his book titled Reading the Bible Again for the First Time, Taking the Bible Seriously But Not Literally. I've made the point that the assumption that the Bible should be read literally is one that simply cannot be grounded. You are free and welcome to read it in that way. But such a reading results in a lot of difficulties. I've mentioned before that the book of Jonah is assumed by most scholars, okay, so the liberal ones, to be something like a comedy. The very fact that Jonah is supposed to have spent three days in the stomach of a fish or a whale should be a clue. How is that possible? When I was still in the evangelical world, my response to things like this was, well, if God's truly almighty, then God could somehow make this happen. But isn't it so much simpler to say that this is a very important story that is true in a mythical sense, a story that provides a deep truth that is not literally true? Borg speaks of conscious literalism, in which those who profess to take things literally are well aware that the things that they believe are, well, really difficult to believe. On this view, the Bible is divinely inspired. But wait, what does that mean? In the fundamentalist circles that turned into evangelicalism, the view held was called the dictation theory. God literally dictates to the writers and they just write it down. Evangelicals found this too mechanical, so they speak of the writers as being divinely inspired. On the face of it, that sounds very reasonable. But how exactly did God inspire these writers? Bear in mind that this view goes hand in hand with the view that scriptures are true and authoritative, as well as being factually and historically true. Bohr considers this view to be inherently patriarchal, exclusive, and focused on the afterlife. If you have any questions about evangelicalism being patriarchal, you should read Beth Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, a text that I hope to address in a future episode. In terms of being exclusive, that depends, of course, to some extent, on which Christian tradition is under consideration. Evangelicalism exclu is exclusive in the sense that it proclaims itself to be the one true form of Christianity. Alas, evangelicalism is not alone in making such a claim. So it is not merely that Christianity is exclusive. 
certain forms of Christianity consider themselves as having the one true take on the Bible. As to being focused on the afterlife, many expressions of Christianity put such little emphasis on this life that their members are largely marking time until the real thing happens. That is, they get to die and go be with Jesus. Of course, one of the things I discovered along the way was that people who talked in such passionate and wonderful terms about how great heaven would be usually didn't want to die. But if this life is merely about passing through the glories of heaven, why would evangelicals be so keen on staying alive? Do they really believe all this stuff about heaven? It does make you wonder. Borg points to various changes that have occurred both in the 20th century and earlier. Among the many things travel to what was then called the New World accomplished is that it made us realize that there are so many different religions out there, as in thousands. One could solve the problem by doing what many people are doing, just stepping away from Christianity. I've made the point, though, that Christianity, along with, for that matter, ancient Greek philosophy, has given us the basic categories of thought. In other words, you can stop believing whatever aspects of Christianity you like, but you can't reconfigure Western thought so easily. A further feature of this change is what has been called postmodernity. In teaching in the evangelical world, I found that many people assumed that postmodernity was some bad thing. My own take, however, is that postmodernity, or if you want to use another term, just simply exposed modernity for what it is. Modernity was supposed to be giving us the objective truth, but once you see that even the notion of objective truth is itself highly culturally conditioned, then rhetoric about objectivity turns out to be very hollow. Growing up, I remember various authorities who would proclaim in the voice you know you get in some of those 1950s science films, Science has proven that, and you can fill in the blank with whatever you like. The apotheosis of modernity was logical positivism, which was a view that only empirically demonstrable or analytically true statements count as rational. In order to maintain this view, though, the logical positivists asserted that all statements regarding morality, yeah, so regarding lying or stealing or whatever, are merely expressions of emotion. In that sort of world, it was assumed that there is this dichotomy between what's called fact and what was called value. The difficulty, of course, was trying to attach the value to the fact. In marked contrast, postmodern thought has pointed out that there are simply no facts without values. Recent neuroscience shows exactly that. We do not encounter things in the world free from values. Everything is laden with values. One of the points that Borg makes is that the Bible lacks footnotes to say things like, this point is universal and valid for all time, or else, this is just a cultural thing, you can ignore it if you like, doesn't matter. However, even evangelicals don't take everything literally. Although Paul uses the argument of nature for head coverings for women, which would have been a very strong argument in his day, this is one of those things that almost no one takes seriously, except for the Amish and certain other small conservative sects. When I brought up this point to an older evangelical woman, the quick response was, oh, that doesn't matter. In some ways, I'm happy that this doesn't matter, 
since this passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 through 16, and it's one of Paul's particularly misogynistic rants. But I found it so strange that a passage could be dismissed as lightly as that by someone who claims to take the Bible literally. But Borg's main point, of course, is that the key is hermeneutics. I've talked many times about the effect of Gadamer's thought on my thought, and this is probably the most important point. Namely, everyone operates with a hermeneutic. There is no non-hermeneutical reading of anything. If you say, I'm reading the Bible literally, that is a hermeneutic. Even a stop sign requires a hermeneutic, because, of course, it doesn't mean stop forever. It just means stop for a few seconds, and, you know, you can go depending on the traffic. You can read the Bible as something literal, or you can read it more deeply as profound metaphors about human existence and purpose. Having grown up with the literal interpretation as the standard, I've come to see that literal readings make the Bible into something very weird. However, Borg also helps us realize that Jesus doesn't seem to see himself as setting up a new religion, but a new way of being Jewish. It's only much later that Jesus comes to be seen as teaching something that we now call Christianity. We know at this point that there were many, many Gospels, and those reflected the many different communities that took Jesus as their leader or founder or exemplar. What we have in the New Testament is a very small selection of these texts. You may know that in 1945, what is now known as the Nag Hammadi Library was discovered, a treasure trove of early Christian manuscripts. But here's the thing about the manuscripts that compose the New Testament. They are designed to be a mixture of literal history and metaphorical history. This is why scholars distinguish between literal and metaphorical meanings. What makes the Gospel of Mark so important is that he lays out a conception of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, you can live the kingdom life now. You don't have to wait for some future event. And I'd like to close on that note. Whether you think Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't, the kingdom of heaven is a life available to you right now on this Easter day. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and you've been listening to On Becoming. Thanks for joining us.